I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Christina Klutgen about her really gorgeous new book, Imperial Illusions, Crossing Pictorial Boundaries in the Qing Palaces. This came out in 2015 at the University of Washington Press, and by Qing Palaces, it focuses in particular on the reign of the Qianlong Emperor, and he reigned from 1736 to 1795, but it also extends more broadly to consider the kinds of phenomena that Christina explores more broadly in the context of the I Ching and also beyond. So what's happening here is the book is looking specifically at scenic illusion paintings as they were produced in the Yongzheng reign and then as their production intensified under Qianlong. And it understands these scenic illusion paintings within the larger framing of a culture and an interest in illusions and sort of pictorial games visual and verbal punning in the 18th century, but also looks ahead to what's happening um, as photography by the end of the book starts transforming visual culture in the 19th century and looks back to the context of murals and illusionistic wall painting um, in Buddhist contexts well before the Qing. The book works on many different levels, and it's something that is really profoundly transdisciplinary. You'll find chapters here that speak explicitly to the history of science, um, that speak to garden studies, the history of um, foreign relations in the Qing, the history of images and art, paintings, and well beyond. So it's a book that I think is enjoyable and really um, important and really um, rewards a reading, whether you are an expert in Chinese studies or have no background in Chinese studies but are interested in these larger issues of illusion, visual culture, and beyond. So it was really great fun talking with Christina about it, um, and I, I really enjoyed this one, and I really, really recommend getting your hand on the book because the images in the book are really an integral part of the argument and are really, really important, I think, for situating how we understand Qianlong within the larger context of Qing studies and world history. So thanks very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Christina Klutgen about her really gorgeous and really fascinating new book, Imperial Illusions. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Christina, and thanks for producing an amazing book, and also for making time to talk to me about it. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So, Christina, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the field of Chinese art history, and perhaps what brought you to Qing art history in particular? Sure. Well, it it all started in college. I knew I wanted to study China, and I was making headway into a double major in Asian studies and linguistics. I had already been to China, and I was taking the one Chinese art course that was offered. And we were sitting in storage one day at the college museum, and it, it sounds silly, but it really did feel like a light bulb went off over my head. 
And so I, I went to see the professor who was a Japanist, a Japanese print specialist. And between him, Alan Hockley, and then Sarah Allen, both of these are at Dartmouth. And uh, Sarah works, of course, on ancient China. So between the two of them, trained as an undergraduate, really brought me into both sides of um, Chinese art history from the perspective of Sinology on the one hand and then art history on the other. So I wasn't a Qing person at the beginning. I was actually working on warring states and Han period material. And then I ended up in graduate school. I knew I wanted to go forward with this. I, I determined that I needed a PhD in order to do what I wanted to do. And at the end of the first year in a landscape painting class, my then advisor, Eugene Wong, uh, he suggested that I look at some 18th century landscape paintings. And that brought me to the set of engravings that I look at in chapter five of the book. And between him and Yukio Lippet, here we are today. Great. So the book that we're talking about today looks at pictorial illusions in high Qing palaces and illusions of all sorts, including um, scenic illusion paintings, which were massive wall and ceiling mounted paintings that were produced collaboratively and done in color in silk. And we'll talk about some of those, but also other kinds of uh, illusions in pictorial form and sometimes in sort of collaboration with textual form. And the book focuses on the reign of the Qianlong Emperor, but also contextualizes that more broadly. So how did you come to this particular topic as the focus of the book? Well, once I started doing that, that landscape painting paper, my first year in graduate school, I started poking around a bit more and finding a couple of grainy photos of these massive paintings that were uh, adhered to walls and ceilings inside the palaces. And the more I looked, the less I found, actually. There was practically nothing on the subject. And that confounded me and fascinated me at the same time. So as I started looking about more and more and then um, decided or was coming close to deciding that this was something that I really probably wanted to pursue in terms of cross-cultural connections and expanding the definitions of Chinese art as uh, it had been presented to me in many cases, I started... Um, I started looking into this and then and then left for two years in China, thanks to the Blakemore Foundation. And while I was out there reading the archives as part of my language training and living in Beijing, that was actually the time when the World Monuments Fund was collaborating with the Palace Museum on conserving several of these paintings and restoring what's now known as the Retirement Studio. So in the years I spent in Beijing hanging around the palace, poking about in the archives, um, and benefiting from the generosity of a number of different people who took pity on a poor graduate student <laughs> and her quest for a dissertation topic. Ultimately, I found enough to produce a book, which just was better than anything I could ever have imagined. So can you talk about that transition? So the book did start out as a dissertation level project. Were there any kind of major transformations from one stage of the project to another, either in terms of how you were thinking about the conceptual framing or the research or really anything um, that you feel like is important for us to know about the transition from dissertation to book? 
Mm-hmm. There's actually a fairly large transition. Of course, I'm working with a number of paintings that are not themselves numerous. I'm working with a very small group of about a dozen, give or take. And I knew that no matter what, unless something magical happened, there wasn't suddenly going to be an influx of new core work. So I've kept, by and large, the case study, case study by chapter uh, focus or organization of the dissertation. But beyond that, there's a great deal of new material in terms of new translations. There's a whole new chapter on the study of vision, which I really think is a uh, an important link in the chain between how these paintings start to come about in the Kangxi reign and how they take off in the Qianlong reign, because that's really the Yongzheng missing link in the chain. Uh, so we have that expansion. And then also there was the benefit of a number of exhibitions that were touring internationally in between the publication of the dissertation and the publication of the book. And here I'm referring to things like The Emperor's Private Paradise that toured to, for example, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Salem Museum, uh, Peabody Essex, as well as the Milwaukee Art Institute. And so taking advantage of that new research to strengthen my own work and to help reconceptualize things. The dissertation had a lot to do with creating a very personal connection between Chenlong and the paintings themselves. And the book um, takes a broader view on that. It's not quite as personal. It takes his rhetorical position into account much more but also takes advantage of um, new material that's come out in light of the conservation of several of these sites, such as paintings that hadn't been discussed before in this context, as well as a couple of pieces of visual evidence for paintings that are now lost. So reconstructing larger corpuses of work without actually having the work and, and reconceptualizing it also um, in a more theoretical way, dealing with the the issues of sight and touch as two sides of the same coin, and how to deal with these paintings that were themselves not meant to be initially understood as paintings, but were meant to fool you and therefore challenged your perception of the world around you as well as the trustworthiness of your own senses. So I think those are big changes from the dissertation. Awesome. Thank you. And that actually leads us, I think, really beautifully into the introduction. So these paintings, these scenic illusion paintings, haven't really been, as as you tell us early in the book, um, published on very much. They're unwieldy, they're fragile, but at the same time, they're really important, I think, as the book shows us, for us to understand, not just because they offer insights into Qianlong um, and into a kind of broader culture of illusion, Um, that he's living and working in, but also they offer a perspective on how Chinese art, as you put it in the intro, integrated or rejected foreign concepts at the height of early modern Sino-European exchange. So this is really, um, I think, of potential wide interest, not just for China scholars, but also for anybody working on global history um, and sort of exchange therein. So the way that viewers experienced and encountered these illusions, and you've kind of um, are already started getting at this in, in engaging this sort of sensory experience and the sensorium that this produced in viewers. The way that viewers did this really differed from t- 
traditional Chinese paintings. As you put it in the intro, they sacrificed the entire established set of criteria and viewing practices that historically defined Chinese paintings as art. So since this seems really important, let's get at that a little bit as a way of bringing us into the book and into these paintings. Um, how did, can you talk a little, about, a little bit about that basically? How did the viewer's experience of these paintings importantly differ from the way they would have experienced traditional Chinese paintings? And what elements of that experience do we need to understand in order to understand um, the larger argument as it unfolds later in the book? One of the things we have to remember first is that the definition of the viewer here is often singular. These were produced really for one man, the emperor, and although, of course, many people ultimately encountered them in the palace, really it was the emperor's vision of these paintings that mattered. And in fact, we have very few comments from his ministers or officials or court painters about their experience with the works. But those that have survived are uniformly negative. Um, when we're talking about, say, the court painter Zoe Gui or one of the ministers that a secretary on the 1792-93 McCartney uh, embassy had to these works, which was these are these are unearthly, these are ungodly, they are, they're wrong, basically. It should not exist this way. So we have to assume that since the archives, the Chenlong Painting Academy archives, are absolutely chock full of commissions for these works, we have to assume that Chenlong really enjoyed these things. But when we talk about them as paintings, there's a discrepancy between what we think of as a quote-unquote Chinese painting, usually a hand scroll or a hanging scroll, not something that's out on permanent display, but something that's kept stored away in a box, wrapped up, protected. So even before you see a work in that context, you're already thinking about it as a painting. I am going to look at a painting. What these paintings do, scenic illusions do, that's different, is that you walk into a room and they're already there on the wall and they're meant to fit into the surrounding space such that upon first glance, you don't in fact notice them as paintings. You think they're just part of the real space. And this seems impossible even today, but I have to admit that it one of them fooled me. Really? At one point, I walked into a building where I knew there was a painting. I didn't know where. The attendant opened the door and they let me in. And I, I walked in and I stopped and I started to apologize because there were people at the other end of the hallway. <laughs> and it wasn't people. <laughs> it was one of these paintings. And it hadn't been conserved. And it was in, in pretty poor condition. And yet... I had been taken in just like other people did. So we're looking at things also that maybe in the production archives are referred to as paintings, but that really don't show up in the Chenlong painting collection catalogs. So just the discrepancy of their, their absence or presence in the archives challenges whether we can think of them as paintings, and yet that is really what they were understood as. 
And as far as the viewing experience goes, it, it encompasses multiple stages. You initially engage with it as a real space. You don't think it's a painting. And then you recognize that it's a painting and you start to reevaluate the subject matter, which always made sense, logical sense for both the setting of the building where it was installed, as well as the larger meaning of that site, a personal meaning to the emperor. And so finally, you had to think about these as existing both as an illusion and as a painting in order to really uh, really get the benefit of everything they could do. And it's that ability to see both the material object, the painting on the one hand, and the illusion, and to enjoy that illusion on the other hand, that I think really makes for the kind of sophisticated viewership that Qianlong was modeling in creating or commissioning these works for his many palaces. Awesome. Thank you so much. And the um, introduction actually takes us um, in detail into the importance of the fact that um, traditional Chinese paintings, right, usually didn't do what these illusions did, which was using a fixed viewing point or angle of representation. And also they were portable, right? They weren't meant to be site-specific in this way. And sort of um, understanding them as site-specific helps us understand not just the built space in which they're installed, right? And, and the, the way that space would have been experienced, as you just alluded to, but also how Qianlong engaged with them in his own private space. So this is about um, really creating different ways of understanding and getting at um, potential spatial experience, and I think a really beautiful way. Now, you uh, mentioned that there's, these were often produced collaboratively, and they were produced at and by something called the Wish Fulfilling Studio. So um, since this is its own really fascinating context here, can you tell listeners um, who may not be familiar with this a little bit about this Wish Fulfilling Studio? And what kinds of things as a scholar, when you were looking into this studio, did you find in their archives? The Wish Fulfilling Studio is one of, especially Qianlong's, many, many dedicated art and craft production workshops. And in fact, the Wish Fulfilling Studio is really the best of the best, the uh, elite branch of the painting academy to which the emperor's best Chinese and Manchu painters were attached, but also, and perhaps most importantly for these paintings, the three or four European missionary painters who were ever present at the 18th century court at any given time. So all of those men were attached to this particular branch of the painting studio, and the workshop archives detail the commissions given to the members of the studio. It talks about where things were commissioned for and when uh, we see the terms used with which we can identify this type of painting. But also, none of these paintings bear signatures of the artist. Of course, the signature would have ruined the illusion, but it was also common practice in the court painting academies for a work to be produced collaboratively, generally speaking. And so you had 
this fellow who was best at architecture, do the building. This fellow who was best at figures, do that. A third fellow, do the landscape, and so on and so forth. Now, obviously, with these works, when we're looking at at paintings that are multiple meters wide and high, you needed many hands to create the finished product. So from the perspective of a workshop practice, the collaborative production of these works was absolutely par for the course. What the archives also revealed to us is the extraordinary frequency with which Chenlong commissioned these works, the artists who were involved very specifically, the locations where many of them were originally installed, most of which have been lost, places like inside the Yuanmingyuan, the Garden of Perfect Brightness, or the Garden of Eternal Spring, out in the garden complexes in the suburbs of Beijing and Haidian, as well as some of the subject matter. We don't have too much discussion of the subject matter, but often after you're tracking a particular painting over the course of weeks or months, you get a comment here or a comment there, but also you get Chenlong's corrections because all of the drafts were sent to him for approval. And sometimes he would send it back and say, no, no, I actually want this instead or paint it this way instead. And so you get an incredible insight into the process as well as into the emperor's preliminary responses to the works and the way he was manipulating things to create them to his liking all the way along. So in the, as a historian, I have to ask you, right, in the, in your experience working with these archives, were there any moments that stick out for you um, where you were really surprised um, by something that you found? Like, were there any kind of aha moments for you in working with these archives? Oh, I, there are more than one, yeah. easily. <laughs> I mean, when I was sitting down reading, you know, 60-odd years of Painting Academy records, what surprised me was the fact that they were so inconsistent with their terminology for these paintings. So a single painting could be referred to as what I've translated as a scenic illusion painting. It could have been translated as a perspectival painting, as a scenic illusion perspectival painting. Sometimes even there's a scenic illusion oil painting mentioned. And so that, I think, has been part of the difficulty in pinning these down not just that so few survive, but also that the archives themselves demonstrate that there were multiple terms floating around. And the other aha moments were really just picking out the different sites where such things were installed. I mean, you get this moment like, wait, he had one of those there? Why would he have one there? What on earth was he thinking? And then, you know, because in so many cases the works have been lost, you have to wonder what did it look like that he wanted it there in that place. So, I mean, some of the major buildings in the Forbidden City, the Hall of Supreme Harmony, for example, there are archives that record commissions for scenic illusions in that primary space of power and politics. And yet, to the best of my knowledge, there is nothing that survives of this type of painting in those sorts of buildings. Thank you so much. Now, this is getting me really excited to, to move on to talk about some of these paintings. Okay, so this, these paintings that emerged at the Yongzheng court and that proliferated under Qianlong, 
didn't represent a lapse from the longer history of Chinese painting, as you demonstrate in the first chapter, but were instead inseparable from it. And the first chapter really demonstrates this by taking us into the context of the use of illusion in murals and wall paintings associated with Buddhist spaces, um, in song illusionistic murals, in tombs and temples. Do you want to talk maybe a little bit about that um, briefly, just to kind of let us know what are some of the most important things to understand about this earlier context in order for us to understand how to situate the arrival of the Jesuits later on. Mm -hmm. There is a great deal of illusionism in medieval murals. So Han, Six Dynasties, Tang, and especially I think we see this preserved best at sites such as Dunhuang, the Buddhist murals that have survived in the caves out there in the desert. And these were important parts of people's lives, not just in the caves, but also in the cities with important painters like Wu Daozi, who is known and beloved for his ability to seemingly bring paintings on walls to life. There are stories of dragons coming out of clouds and flying off and uh, hell cycles that were so intense and fearsome that butchers were inspired <laughs> to become vegetarians. And yet at the same time, there's this parallel tradition that sees muralists as lesser artists, even though they're being praised. Even in some of the early art historical texts, they are also being criticized and the artists being criticized as mere artisans and producing works that only the general populace could appreciate and that the educated were rather too sophisticated to to enjoy and really didn't need to enjoy. And that just builds and builds until the Northern Song, when the presence of paintings in temples and tombs and the rise of men like Su Shi and Guo Roxu, they really start to rail against this type of work. And in fact, it's Guo Roxu who says that such paintings, there was this previously in the Tang Dynasty, there was this idea of magical paintings in the capital that you could step into them and then step back out. And Guo Roshu, he just, he just dismisses them out of hand. He just says, they're not even worth talking about. I'm not even going to define them. And he moves on. It, he just kind of goes off in a huff and continues his, his discussion. And so by the time you get to the Ming, of course, there's all those incredible um, murals that are connected with, say, Taoist sites and early Ming sites that we now have in some museums, especially in the United States, um, like the massive Buddhist mural in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, for example, that anchors the first big room you enter into for Asian art. But by the time you get to the Ming, They've really turned it on its head. Craig Clunas in one of his books recounts this incredible story about Shen Zhou where a, someone wanted to humiliate Shen Zhou and decided to put him up as a muralist. And so his, his name was chosen because the governor didn't know any better. And so Shen Zhou sort of quietly goes and does this, doesn't say anything, comes back. And then when the governor realizes his faux pas, 
the he, he sends someone to apologize and Professor Clunas has this great line, something to the effect of, you didn't ask Shenzhou to paint a wall. Gentlemen did not do walls. <laughs> and it's this contrast between being considered a wall painter and a painter. And so by the time the uh, European missionaries come into play, they introduce linear perspective initially at the court as an aspect of optical demonstrations. So in the late 1660s, there's a series of optical demonstrations that are done. And one of the uh, Jesuits doing the demonstrations includes a number of massive perspectival paintings, and they go over well. And everyone is fooled. And um, then with the arrival of the Italian painter Giovanni Gherardini uh, at the Kangxi court about 1699, 1704, 5, give or take. And Gherardini is serving the French mission, actually, but he's been trained by a number of uh, painters in Europe who are producing these monumental wall and ceiling paintings, quadratura. And His successor at the court, because Gherardini only lasts a few years, his successor, the famous Giuseppe Castiglione, is another one of these Italian artists trained in the monumental, illusionistic wall and ceiling painting tradition. And so you have two artists who come over in short span of time, and they start producing these in the churches, yeah, the Jesuit churches in Beijing, except the uh, the residents of Beijing have actually forgotten. There's this great comment by some fellow who's seen these paintings, and he said, you can't even imagine it. I only wish that the ancients had seen this, and yet they did have this, not necessarily in geometric linear perspective, but there was a whole tradition that had simply been forgotten because it had been replaced with greater valorization for what we think of as literati painting. Awesome. Now, one of um, Castiglione's students, or at least somebody who acknowledged him as a teacher, really um, forms the focus of the next chapter. This is a fascinating chapter that focuses on Nian Xiao and his work, The Study of Vision, or Shi Shui. Um, which was published in 1735, or produced in 1735. Now, Nian is a fascinating character in his own right. He worked at one point in his life as the superintendent of the imperial ceramic factories at Jingdezhen. He wrote a text um, called A Brief Guide to Polyhedron Proportions. He's a really fascinating character who's very much um, someone who, at least for us, straddles the history of science and the history of art um, in a really beautiful way. Okay, so the text um, that you focus on in this chapter is a 149-page treatise. There's lots of diagrams that teach European techniques of European of linear perspective. There's a lot going on. So let's jump in um, by kind of diving into the text, and I'm just going to kind of pitch the ball back to you. Um, can you introduce, basically, for listeners who have never heard about this text, this work, this study of vision. For you, what are the most important aspects of this text, and what do we need to know to know how to fit it into the larger argument here? 
This treatise, which is 95% illustrations, truly 95%, is often mischaracterized as an adaptation or a translation of Andrea Pozzo's Perspectiva Pictorum et Architecturum, a, a terribly famous perspective and painting treatise from late 17th century Italy, and a Jesuit product as well, I have to add. And a percentage of the illustrations in the study of vision are, in fact, copies of some of the illustrations in the Pozzo treatise. And this, I think, is what's prompted many of the assessments that it is, in fact, just a sort of a second-rate version of the Pozzo, which is not, in fact, true. The majority of the illustrations are original, and we know this because several of them quite identifiably deal with Chinese objects, and particularly objects that can be traced to not just the Qing dynasty, but also ceramics that were being produced under Nian Xiao's um, long-distance supervision at Jing Dezhen. So in this treatise, where he's teaching the basics of perspective um, and specifically distance point perspective, where you triangulate the vanishing point from the side. He also teaches about how to create cast shadows and uh, how to create objects that look like they exist in three dimensions, so foreshortening techniques as well. But there's really minimal instructions, and the instructions are often of the type of draw a line from point A to point B and from point C to point D and then connect D with B and C with A and then you can infer the rest. This is the basic method. You're on your own. Mm -hmm. And so he, he assumes a great deal of his reader. And so with this text that was actually published first in 1729 and then dramatically expanded by Nian's own account and republished in 1735, He's producing this at a time when the first scenic illusions are being produced at the Yongzheng court. And Nian Xiao not only had personal connections to this emperor, one of his sisters was one of Yongzheng's consorts. He had been working pretty closely with Yongzheng in a number of uh, different areas. Uh, Nian also steadily progressed up the bureaucratic ladder I think often thanks to his personal connections with the emperor. And so he also had a great deal of interest in the Western objects that were coming in and as well as with the Jesuits and his proximity to the emperor, to the court, his high court position gave him the access to develop this interest, to uh, expand it. He was, however, primarily a mathematician mm -hmm. and almost all of his publications were on mathematics. And that is also, I think, Maybe what, uh, maybe what appealed to him about the various perspective treatises that we know were held in the Jesuit library at the time and may have inspired him to produce this. But also I think it demonstrates the transition that was happening for linear perspective uh, between Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Chenlong. Because when, as I mentioned, perspective is introduced at the Kangxi court, it's done in the context of optical experiments. And it it's closely tied, I think, to the presence of mathematics 
at the court um, until that starts to wane in the early 1700s. And yet, all of a sudden, we see from the first year of Qianlong's reign that he's commissioning scenic illusions. Now, these things obviously didn't come out of nowhere. And so, though none of the scenic illusions that Yongzheng commissioned are known to survive, perhaps they do somewhere, I certainly hope so, but the closest we can really get both to those works and to this transition period when perspective went from being an aspect of technical knowledge to being um, an artistic technique with great possibilities for visual deception and illusion, where we see that transition during the Yongzheng period, that is in the study of vision with Nian Yao. Awesome. And this is, um, you know, speaking as somebody who works in the history of science, also, I have to give a shout out to one of the important points you make here, which is that, dude, nobody thinks about him, right, as part of the history of <laughs> mathematics, but we totally should. So shout out to um, integrating sources like this and this particular source to into the way we think about um, and what we think about when we think about the history of science and mathematics. Well, and that was one of the, the, my most, my most favorite parts of, of that chapter because the same year that Nian publishes this revised expanded version of the study of vision on illusionistic painting is when three months later he produces his polyhedron proportion text, which incidentally has a number of little illustrations in the tables of these three dimensional figures. And so when we're looking at those, he talks about them in, in much the same terms. And so I, I had a, this is this is really geeky. I had a great time translating the prefaces to the polyhedron proportion text. <laughs> That's okay. You can admit it here. This is a safe space. Right. <laughs> the history of, of Nian Xiao and mathematics is was uh, was a lot of fun for me. I had a, I had a really good time with that. That's awesome. And I, and also um, for listeners who don't think of themselves as being primarily interested in histories of China, but who are interested in the history of mathematics and science, there's a really wonderful treatment in this chapter, chapter two, of his use of diagrams um, in particular. And this is important because, you know, history of visualization and um, diagrams is a very, very important subfield um, and very much a growing and healthy subfield in the history of science. And so Check it out, Historians of Science, Chapter 2, Diagram a Palooza. So, <laughs> so um, you mentioned here, um, sort of toward the end of the chapter, that the treatise is most deeply concerned with, and this is, I'll, I'll quote, the link between visual perception and intellectual apprehension through the creation of illusionistic paintings. And so you sort of bring us back into this world and connection between what Nian is doing here. And of course, he coins the first um, Chinese term for linear perspective, right? And this broader world of illusionistic painting. And this is um, something that I think brings us really nicely into chapter three. So chapter three brings us into, and really literally brings us into an, an illusionistic painting, the portrait of Qianlong's consort with Yongyan as a child. So we'll get into this painting in a moment. Um, this is a painting that putatively was originally located in the studio for contemplating the future. And the chapter reads this painting as an illustration, and here um, I'll quote from the chapter, of Qianlong's most personal thoughts on balancing loving fatherhood with the responsibility to educate his heir at a time when he was really concerned about the future of the dynasty. Okay, so to get into the um, painting and understand 
what's going on there. First, we need to get into the garden. Um, and so can you introduce for us Qianlong's retirement complex and specifically the Qianlong garden? What do we need to understand about the garden um, to appreciate the kind of work that you're doing and reading the painting in that context? Qianlong's retirement garden was built in the 1770s, and it's tucked into the northeast corner of the Forbidden City. Part of it is open to the public, but the vast majority of the buildings are not yet open um, as conservation of the site continues. And it's an extraordinarily intimate garden, um, less than two acres, long and narrow. And as with so many small urban gardens, the attempt is made to really expand the feel of the space through uh, juxtaposition of rock formations, scale changes, height changes, and so on. And so this this site was created with a number of different structures. And this is actually where the majority of the extant scenic illusions survive on the walls in their original places. And one of the ways I think this site has made it this far with such a high concentration is because it was really reserved for retired emperors, namely Qianlong. There, there weren't others after him, although the Empress Dowager Cixi definitely spent some time there. She had a, a great personal affinity with Qianlong, and she enjoyed this space as well. But in 1924-25, when the imperial family moved out of the Forbidden City and it became the Palace Museum, my understanding is that they basically just locked the door in this quadrant and walked away. And so when they went to conserve it, um, during the time that I was getting into Beijing, sort of in the early mid-2000s, there was a great deal of damage that had been done just over time, but many of the things had been kept in place. And the thing to remember with the painting that forms the core of Chapter 3 is that um, the paintings in the retirement studio tend to, except in one important case, show children at play. So it has a great deal to do with um, offspring and progeny and the symbolism of carrying on the male line as well as the imperial line. But that sort of imagery actually began even earlier in the early 1760s in what seems to have been intended as Qianlong's original retirement complex, the Garden of Eternal Spring, out next to the Perfect Brightness Garden, the Yuan now in, in Haidian district. And so the presence of multiple monumental paintings showing small boys at play not only connects to this longer um, thematic and generic tradition of symbolic auspicious images of many boys and many sons, but also to the particular concerns of Qianlong as he was nearing his last decades of the reign, and after his first two favorite sons by his beloved first empress had passed away, and Qianlong was kind of getting nervous about who would succeed him. And it ultimately ends up being one of his very last sons. And for some reason, um, in the early 1760s, he really latched on to this one at least in the painting, truly adorable, tiny child 
who becomes later the Jaqing Emperor. That's right. He's a he is really adorable. He's super <laughs> adorable. So let's just just so that listeners really appreciate it. Um, and so you take us into this painting, and again, give us a really beautiful reading of this beautiful um, and very evocative painting that includes leading us through the process of deciding um, that it indeed probably does represent um, the Prince Yongyan and his mommy consort Ling. You talk about the importance of Yongyan's gaze and gesture in this context, but also um, you talk about the ways here that Qianlong's poems help us understand this painting. And since this is one example of many, many examples in the book where you're, I think, really evocatively and then quite brilliantly bringing together these two kinds of documentary trace, the painting and the poem, and showing how they um, inform one another. Can you talk a little bit about this? What um, What's important about uh, Qianlong's poems in this case, in terms of how we understand um, this painting? Well, Qianlong's poems aren't often aren't often considered um, a source in the sense that he is credited with writing more than 40,000 of them, meaning that obviously he did not write all of them. And the quality can be, let's just say, dubious from time to time. So in using the poems as a way to connect the emperor to the site where this painting was installed. And, and on that, I was going on the imperial yellow slip that remains adhered to the outside of the painting, which was rolled up. And that site, the Studio of Contemplating the Future, um, as I was flipping through Qianlong's poetry collections, as one does, of course. <laughs> all of um, your ample free time. Oh, yeah. and all of my ample like free what time. You do, right? <laughs> read Qianlong's poetry and, yeah. and, and wonder at how bad some of them are, in <laughs> fact. Um, I, I noticed this one site kept popping up a lot, and the, the themes were really consistent after a certain point. He's worried about the future, and he's, he's very actively worried. Now, of course, one of the things with Qianlong especially is that you have to be careful not to just buy what he's selling wholesale. There's uh, an amount of rhetoric that you always have to take into consideration. But the consistency with which he was writing about this anxiety, the frequency of this anxiety, um, the fact that he's alluding to previous poems on the subject that he wrote expressing his anxiety, and then all of a sudden he makes a very specific statement. He says, um, in 1784, two years ago I wrote this poem about how I was anxious and nervous and now it's all fine. I've got the air. He's okay. The empire's in good hands. I am no longer troubled. And in about 10 years, I'll retire. And that's, in fact, exactly what he does. And so in tracking these poems on the studio, I think they also track the growth, maturation, and development of the boy he has um, declared his heir, uh, even though most people didn't know, he knew, of course, who he was considering. 
And for a long time, he was concerned. And this is how and where he expressed his concern. But he also makes a couple of statements that are really poignant. When he's sitting in one poem, he describes sort of sitting in the desk at the desk in this south facing studio. So in beautiful sunlight, watching his little buds and sprouts play on the stairs. And sometimes they creep into the building and spend time with him. And it just it's this unadulterated paternal delight in the children that you don't often see. And that's a really short, sweet poem. It's four lines and it's, there's none of the anxiety there. But I think especially when he's considering, you know, will this boy be worthy when he had declared so many of his other sons unworthy or that they had died and he was, he was really running out of options to contrast the growing boy with the adorable two or three year old toddler in the painting. He's also thinking about the times when he can just be a father as well as the fact that he needs to be a father to the empire and consider the well-being of the entire, uh, the entire nation and to consider also the moral raising of his son and his son's upbringing, uh, that's necessary in order to be a quality ruler. So this, this is an unusual painting for me in that there are so many poems that were written on it that what's in the book is actually just a small fraction of the poems that relate these themes. And yet they're so consistent up until the point at which he decides it's okay. Yongyan, who will become Zha Qing, is going to make a perfectly fine ruler. Now, the next chapter also takes us into the connection between Qianlong's poems and these illusion paintings. And it takes us into, in particular, Qianlong watching peacocks in their pride from 1761 as really the only known scenic illusion that was inscribed with a Qianlong poem. Um, now, the painting is... I would love to talk with you just about this painting for an hour, so we can't do that. Um, but it's it's really, really important for many reasons. Um, you situate this painting, among other things, within a larger context of tribute painting. Um, you help us understand this painting as a way to get at Qianlong's conflicted response to Central Asian military campaigns and to sort of see what's happening with the peacocks in terms of a larger... Um, relationship between the Qing and the Dungars in this period. So it's really, really interesting for listeners and readers who are looking in, in particular for um, sort of the the ways to relate this to a larger history of the Qing in and as part of Central Asia um, and the Qing's relationship with uh, military conquest under Qianlong as well. Now, another really important part of this particular painting, though, is this really unusual aperture that's cut into the rock outcrop at one point uh, in the painting. And you use this to sort of bring out um, the importance of kind of cave symbolism and garden rockery as it speaks to and speaks from this painting. So would you talk just a little bit about that? What's happening with this cave aperture and, and what's important um, in terms of how you think about the importance of this painting in the larger scope of the book? Well, first we have to consider just the size of the work, which is about 350 by 540 centimeters. So we're looking at something that's like 17 feet long. So that's how we can possibly even have a hole cut into the painting large enough that a human can step through. This wasn't 
unusual in scenic illusion paintings. They were often uh, created and composed to fit around doorways or windows. Those apertures in the architecture were simply worked into the composition and the subject of the painting. So in that, it's not unusual. But it is unusual in that it's survived out of its original context. And it has this inscription crammed into this tiny area of blank, unpainted space at the top center of the work. And so the the painting, as you mentioned, is connected to tribute paintings and the Central Asian conflicts of the 1750s and a Qing relationship with the Jungars and even the Kazakhs as well. But when this was installed, it wasn't put where one might expect to have such a work, say, um, in one of the sites where the emperor would fete and entertain his Central Asian guests. This was put in a corner of the Garden of Perfect Brightness, the Yuan in an area that was entirely themed around the idea of a cave heaven. And the cave heaven is something that um, originated many centuries earlier with uh, prose texts like Peach Blossom Spring that tells of a fisherman who goes through a cave and finds this perfect, beautiful world. And he's told that if he goes back, he can't talk about it or he'll never find it again. And of course, he talks about it and he can never find it again. And and this repeats itself through history. So there's this whole actually Taoist geography of cave heavens and maps of them and literature about them and dream journeys to them that exist um, well prior to the Qing. But the idea was very active in the Qing. We have discussions of it in encyclopedias, for example. But Qianlong decides to theme a whole section of one of his gardens after one of these cave heavens. You could only enter it by boat, which was one of the um, mandatory requirements for these cave heavens. You had to pass through, in his case, not a cave, but a fortified wall. And he referred to the whole area as another cave heaven. So I had to consider this painting in that context specifically because when we're looking at these works, we cannot separate them from the sites where they were originally installed. The site specificity of the work is essential to its meaning. And yet in so many cases, those sites have been destroyed. So the only evidence of this site that you'll find today are ruins and stone foundations and rubble in that corner of the perfect brightness garden. But in the corner of this painting, actually it's, it's about 30 to 40% of the work itself. This massive scenic illusion painting is, is taken up with a, an extreme foreground view of a cave aperture. And we call it a cave because it's a big hole in a rocky outcrop. Oh, it was it was too simple to just look at this work as imitating a cave heaven. Um, that's part of it. But it's also the miniaturization effect that Qianlong practiced so often across his landscapes and various enterprises. So even within a garden, a regular garden, a sort of rocky outcrops surrounding an aperture or a cave was itself considered a miniaturization of a cave heaven. And so he has that miniaturization of the cave heaven in his gardens. And he has this painting there as well. So 
there's the cave heaven aspect to it. There's the garden rock fi- rock pile, artificial mountain aspect of it as well. And yet it's tied very specifically to the Central Asian conflict of the 1750s because the peacocks that give the painting its title are repeated in another painting that's tied very specifically to these exotic birds that were given as tribute. And actually the birds in the painting are the offspring of earlier tribute birds. And so he's looking at these birds in the context of this massive campaign that, of course, as we know now, basically exterminated uh, the population of the Jungars and created a great deal of environmental damage as well. And yet he's, he's torn about this. You know, he, he doesn't want to have to be involved, at least rhetorically, in these conflicts. And yet he appreciates the peacocks, but he knows that they signify something much larger than he is that he also doesn't really want to be involved in. And so the, the garden is a space, is a space to escape. The painting is a place in which to escape. And actually, it's one of the few surviving paintings that depicts Qianlong as well. Most of these paintings that have survived do not include imperial portraits. So the fact that it includes an imperial portrait of him is another unusual factor as well. Thanks, Christina. So as we move um, forward toward the, and we move toward the conclusion of our conversation, we move into a chapter that I'm just going to kind of um, peek at rather than asking you to talk significantly about, but not because it's not fascinating. So I want to mark this. Chapter five um, explores the history and significance of a series of buildings and fountains known as the European palaces. We're not going to talk too much about it now, but it does lots of things that are, I think, really fascinating that I want to mark for listeners. It offers us a virtual walk through these palaces. It looks very carefully at a series of copper plate engravings that give us access to what might have been the view of and the experience of the kind of deception evoked by the European palaces. It sort of takes us into the production of these copper plate engravings, the kind of deception afforded by the palaces. And it also situates um, these engravings within a larger history of Chinese garden representations and the sort of the ways that this, um, it talks about the ways in which this contributes the use of linear perspective and basing scenes and other kinds of visual technologies to this larger history of garden um, images. And so um, it's also, it's really interesting um, to anybody who wants to read about uh, gardens, um, a linear perspective, the relationship between images and textual captions, and also the relationship between this imaging and theater technology. So if you're interested in theater and visuality, um, this is one of the major chapters for you. But we got to get to the ladies Um, And so we got to get to chapter six. (laughs) Chapter six takes us back into the Qianlong Garden, and it asks us to pay special attention to a painting of a woman in the upstairs hallway of Qianlong's retirement studio. So, Christina, I'm just going to kick this back to you. What is up with this woman painted in the studio? So the entire studio is meant to mimic the experience of being in a garden on a beautiful day with a fully blossoming wisteria trellis overhead and gorgeous buildings and blue sky. And it all takes place outdoors. And so because this is the site that includes a complete program of wall and ceiling paintings, 
and this is the only one such uh, that survives, it has received a great deal of press and consideration and has been just beautifully conserved. The thing is, upstairs, and this is not a space that's typically considered, upstairs at the very top of the staircase that leads to the second story, there is a painting that makes it look like you are facing a hallway out of which a beautiful woman is peeking as if she's heard music or sound in the garden downstairs and she's poking her head out of her rooms to see what's going on. And the fact that this painting really seemed to be ignored in considering the retirement studio confounded me, especially when in reading the archives, there were so many references to scenic illusions commissioned on the theme of beautiful women. Now, beautiful women, of course, is, is a loaded term. It isn't just a pretty face. It also connotes some degree of sexual availability. And this goes back far enough into Jiangnan literati courtesan culture, as well as um, into earlier studies of simply the visibility of a woman. There's this trope of the, the woman at the door, the woman at the threshold that we see in early tombs, for example, and that continues. And so that visibility suggested some sort of sexual availability that was not necessarily within the realm of traditional established Confucian gentlewomanly behavior. Um, it takes on a different cast in the palace, given that, of course, the emperors had their numerous consorts. And yet, when you tie this to the fact that Chenlong was commissioning a lot of beautiful women, I mean a lot of beautiful women, <laughs> really, um, and yet so few of them remain um, this painting, there's one or two that may originally have been scenic illusions mounted on walls, but there's also the draft sketches for a couple of these ladies that were produced by the French Jesuit uh, Jean-Denis Attiré and are now held in the National Library in Paris. And those have the original yellow slips on them, identifying where they were supposed to go. And that matches up in the archives with the commission for the works. And they're, all of these paintings are incredibly consistent. It's a woman at the threshold to a space, peeking out, engaging the viewer, often directly looking at him um, in with various forms of enticement. And so whereas the retirement studio space has, has been perceived as um, just another symbol of longevity and um, offspring, because wisteria, for example, with multiple blossoms on a single vine, were thought to symbolize an unbroken line of offspring. And that connects pretty closely to the other paintings that we have in the entire Chenlong Garden site. The addition of the woman at the threshold upstairs in the retirement studio changes that site and makes it a little bit more risque, especially because there was this entire subgenre of strange stories that dealt with paintings of women coming to life. And so in the context of these paintings that were uh, these stories that had a long tradition, but that were really taking off with the revival of the strange story 
genre uh, in the Qianlong period, we see an interesting coincidence of literature and art and women and men and painting and illusion all coming together under the auspices of the Qianlong Emperor who had the resources to literally bring his paintings of women to life by using the illusionistic techniques um, available to him through the artists of the wish-fulfilling studio. Awesome. Now, you talk about this, um, and I have to ask you about this super briefly, right? You talk about this um, as a way of understanding a broader context of geogendering under mm-hmm. Qianlong, right? So since that was, um, that's an amazing concept and it's something that was new to me, can you just very briefly explain this idea of geogendering? Sure, that, that's an idea that act, that comes into play in Michael G. Chang's A Court on Horseback. Mm-hmm. And so that book really inspired this idea, the treatment of Jiangnan as a woman, especially by the Qing emperors, particularly Qianlong. And um, there's been a fair amount of writing done on this subject of connecting courtesans, particularly with the Jiangnan region, especially after the fall of the Ming. And that seems to have persisted well into the Qing, specifically with the court women and the costumes they're wearing, which are not Manchu court costumes. They're not the sort of things that we would expect to find. And they're not the sort of costumes that we see generally preserved in the costumes from the period that remain in the holdings of the Palace Museum. So when we have this discrepancy between the costumes and the locations and uh, seeing the women as both manifestations of the South and the lost South and very different from the Manchu North. On the one hand, it can be seen as, um, kind of a reminder that, you know, you were a Manchu and that you really shouldn't get too caught up in this kind of thing, which it was so easy to do. Um, but on the other hand, if you had the paintings, you didn't have to worry about getting caught up with it because they were only paintings. They were only illusions after all. Um, but the idea originated from really a court on horseback. Thank you so much. And so there's a lot more going on in this chapter. Um, ab- among the notable things I will mention, um, this chapter does something that is extraordinarily hard to do well, which is using the adjective vulvar well <laughs> and effectively. And so points for that. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Carla, for bringing that out into the open. You know, these writerly (laughs) things like this really um, are important to me. So, vulvar, good times. So, there's a whole other um, epilogue, which is great, that we're not going to have time to get into, but I'll just mark for listeners. This is Illusions, Illusions, Imperial and Otherwise, that brings readers into the broader context of a more general 18th century interest in illusionism. It talks about kind of shifts of cognition from Ming to Qing, and it also talks about the consequences or sort of um, brings us out into the possibility of doing much more work, right, on the consequences of what happens in the 19th century if we follow these trends along and contextualize it within the rise of photography, um, for example. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the epilogue that I think opens up lots of possibilities for where we might go next. 
So Christina, is there anything else? I mean, there's, there's a ton of stuff, obviously, right? That we didn't have a chance to talk about. I mean, we could have spent an hour on any of these chapters individually and still not exhausted everything that was interesting. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention though, that we didn't have a chance to talk about? I just want to emphasize the fact that as singular as these paintings are, they are all only comprehensible in the context of the larger Qing court production. The same artists were working on these as were working on the other important paintings of the time. It's just that those paintings are more numerous, they're portable, they're scrolls, they purport to depict uh, historical events, for example, or act as documents. And that's one of the things that I really tried to do in this book was to relate each of the case study paintings to the larger court production to prevent them from being separated, which they often have been or seen as um, examples of quote unquote Western influence, a phrase that's the bane of my existence, because these, these are not products of influence. They are the products of the multicultural, multi-ethnic milieu of the Qing court. But at the same time, as you just said, there's this larger aesthetics of illusion that's happening at the time. It's occurring in gardens. It's occurring in literature. It's even occurring in politics, as Philip Kuhn has demonstrated with his book on the soul-stealing crisis. And so we need to see these paintings within the much broader context of the period. And all of a sudden, they don't seem so strange anymore. All of a sudden, they seem just like the most incredible manifestation of all of these different trends coinciding thanks to the resources that were available at the court. So Christina, this is an amazing book. It's a book that is incredibly transdisciplinary. This is, uh, as we've already mentioned, I think, um, or as hopefully is clear from what we've been talking about, this is a book that speaks to the history of science, the history of images, art history, Chinese history, Qing history, and architectural history, um, gender history, et cetera, et cetera. Congratulations, it's amazing. So now that it's out, um, what's uh, currently inspiring you? What are you working on now? I had so much fun with the study of vision and the overlap between the history of art and the history of mathematics that I was starting to look into the connection between optical devices and art. Now, this is something, of course, that Tim Screech has done in the Japanese case, but China, like the Yongzhang period for scenic illusions. China is the missing link in the chain to understanding these. And there's more and more information coming out. And um, I thought there would be enough for an article on this. I thought that was all I could find. Well, that article is now forthcoming and the book is in progress. So the book is called Lens Onto the Worlds and it deals with the vision, visuality, art and optical devices of the uh, late Ming and through into the early Republican period because it wasn't actually until after the Opium War that the first Chinese treatise on optics was written. And of course, it's illustrated. And it is based on all of these optical devices that were being produced in China and had been for centuries. 
and the works of art that go with them that are primarily not court works. We're getting well out of the capital, well away from the court, down into Guangdong and uh, the, the Suzhou region, especially down into Jiangnan, and looking also more at popular consumption as well as the domestic produce domestic production of both the objects and the devices, and therefore looking at how people understood vision in a time when optics and vision really weren't considered scientifically much in contrast to what was happening in Western Europe at the same time. Awesome. And two things. One, I hereby make an official appointment open-ended to interview you about that when it comes out, because it (laughs) sounds amazing. And two, history of science. You know, we get everyone in the end. (laughs) So, but really, thank you so much, Christina. It's an incredible book. It sounds like you're working on amazing stuff right now too. Congratulations all around. And thank you for the book and for your time. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. I've had a great time and I appreciate you asking me on the show. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time.